are listening to the Sermon Audio Podcast from Heights Baptist Church in Alvin, Texas. For more information about our church, you can find us at heightschurch.org. you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we have been working through the book of 2 Timothy for the last six weeks as a church. And the thing that I love about 2 Timothy is it's the last letter that Paul wrote. I don't know about y'all, but I do a lot of streaming. I watch a lot of shows on TV, uh, like a Netflix and, and uh, Disney Plus. You know, I use those, those kinds of streaming services. And one of the cool things about streaming a show is that you get a lot of continuity. You can watch the shows in order. You know, when I was growing up uh, and shows were on TV, you kind of got whatever they put on, you know, and they weren't always in order. And a lot of times it was reruns. And so, like, you had to get lucky if they were going to play, like, the last show of a, of a season or the last show of a series. And so I know, like, as some of my favorite shows have, have run for several years and then come up to an end, like, there's a lot of sort of anticipation that builds when you finally get to the last one. And that's a little bit like what's going to happen this morning because, you know, a lot of the New, New Testament, 13 letters of the New Testament are from Paul. And this is Paul's very last letter. Now, he's writing to Timothy, and he's writing from prison. And if you guys have read the New Testament, you realize that Paul spends a lot of time in prison, right? He, Paul's been in prison before, and there have been times when Paul was in prison where it really wasn't too bad. I mean, he's kind of like under house arrest in Rome, and he's having small group Bible studies in his apartment, you know, with his ankle bracelet. That's what he's doing, you know, and people are able to come in, and he's able to tell people about Jesus. You know, Paul writes in the book of Philippians about how being in prison really hasn't been bad because he's had one of the Roman guards chained to him 24 hours a day. And so while they sit there, they just kind of sit there and Paul's like, uh, so we got some time to kill. Uh, do you have some time to talk about the Lord? And so Paul tells us in, in the letter to the Philippians that he's managed to lead a huge chunk of the Praetorian guard, the Roman guard to Christ, and that the gospel is going forth because he has like the ultimate captive audience. He has a Roman guard chained to him all day long. He's like, hey, so let me tell you about this Jesus guy. But this Roman imprisonment is a little bit different. From what we can tell, Paul isn't necessarily under house arrest anymore. He's like, he's in jail, jail. He's locked in a dungeon. And so he writes this last letter at the end of his life, at the end of, the, of his ministry. He writes it to Timothy because uh, it's not going well. He's already had at least one day in court and it's not gone well at all. And so Paul is starting to realize that this might be the end of the line for him. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 4, and this morning we're going to look at what Paul says to Timothy. These are sort of his final words, his final charge to Timothy. This is what he says. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
When Paul says, I've been poured out like a drink offering, it, he's, he's, he's using a reference to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the saints would go before the Lord, and I don't know if you guys know this, but there are different kinds of offerings that happen in the Old Testament. There's like burnt offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings. You just got to read the book of Leviticus. There's a whole bunch of offerings, and these different offerings have different rules for what part of it gets burned up and what part of it gets eaten. Like sometimes the priest gets to eat part of the sacrifice as their meal and as their living. Um, and sometimes you bring not just like an animal to sacrifice, but sometimes you bring cakes like baked goods and you have like donuts with God. Like that's, that's kind of, so the idea is that some of it goes in the fire and then some of it, the person who brings the offering, they actually eat it. And it's almost like you're sharing a meal with the Lord. But alongside the, the offering of the animal or the offering of the baked goods, you have a drink offering, usually wine, and that gets poured out all the way. All of it's gone. It's not like you pour out just a little bit, right? You pour out the whole thing. And so when Paul says, I'm being poured out like a, like a drink offering, he's saying like, I'm leaving it all on the field. I gave it all. I'm holding nothing back. And the time for my departure has come. That's the same words that you would use in a military context to say, it's time to break camp and go home because we're done. Paul says, I gave it all up. I held nothing back and it's time to go home. And then he uses some sports analogies. Now, sports analogies are not my strong suit, but I'm going to do my best. He says, I have fought the good fight I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. When he's talking about fighting, now see, I did martial arts when I was a kid, right? And whoever got to three points first, the match was over. I usually didn't last 30 seconds in the ring, right? Now, when I go see Brother Martin and he does his jujitsu, jujitsu lasts seven minutes. This is not the kind of conflict Paul's talking about. The competition that Paul is talking about when he's fighting the good fight, it's like one of those boxing matches that goes on forever where there's commercials and stuff. You know what I'm talking about? You guys know that when you get into those fights, I don't know, you guys can tell, I don't know much about boxing. Most of what I know from boxing is from playing uh, Punch-Out on the Nintendo. But you know, but if you've ever seen it, like if you're in the Olympics or stuff, these guys are so tired when you get several rounds in that nobody's throwing punches anymore. They're just kind of like leaning on each other. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it's like, they're so tired, they're about ready to fall over. Like, and it's, it looks kind of awkward because it's like, oh, they're hugging. That's what it looks like to me, you know, and then somebody gets a second win and then, you know, and then the fight keeps going. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now you guys can probably tell by looking at me that I am not a runner, right? This is not lost on anybody, but believe it or not, when I was a kid, I was pretty fast. When I was in little league and the coach said, all the team run to the fence and back and whoever comes back first gets a quarter. I always got the quarter. All right. I was actually pretty fast. I was a good sprinter when I was a kid. But man, if it was more than 50 or 100 yards, I was done. Right. If it was a race that required more than one time around the track, it was not going to happen because I would run and I was pretty fast. But then you get 50, 100 yards in and my sides start hurting and my feet hurt hurting. And I'm like ready to tap out. So those people that run for fun and they're not being chased, I do not understand these people at all. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. All right, j just, just show me. Where are the crazy people? Where are my runners? We got some. There they are. There they are. Y'all are nuts. Every single one of you. 
Every single one of you are nuts, right? I, I cannot even in my imagination imagine why anybody would sign up for anything that ends in K. It's just not going to happen. My, marathon runners, uh, Ironman people, I don't get it. I don't get it. And so I thought, okay, so in, in order to understand what Paul is saying here, I need to get in touch with the runner. So I called my brother, and my brother runs marathons because he's nuts, all right? And I asked him, I said, tell me a little bit about what it's like to just keep going, what it's like to finish the race. And he and I had a good conversation. He talked about sort of the mental discipline that you have to have when you are running and your feet hurt and your sides hurt and your body hurts and every cell in your body is saying, this is a terrible idea. Like, you, we need to stop. We need to lay down. We need to be done. And he's like, no, no, no. Just this many more miles. Just this many more miles. And you just keep your eyes on that finish line. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. You'll notice he doesn't say, I clobbered the other guy. And he doesn't say, I was the first person across the finish line. What he says is, I hung in there. I was able to go the distance. I didn't tap out. I, if I not got knocked down, I got back up and I kept putting one foot in front of the other until I crossed the finish line. When Paul says, I've kept the faith, it, it, that's another military term where the idea is, I have accomplished the mission that has been given to me. You'll see him use that a couple times in the New Testament when he says, I've kept the faith or keep the faith. That's like saying mission accomplished. I got the job done. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon. Living for the gospel means never giving up, never knowing when to quit. When we make the decision to follow Jesus, to become followers of Jesus, we don't get to do it just when it's fun. We get to do it when it's hard. We don't get to do it just when it's easy. We get to do it when it's hard and when it's painful. And every morning we wake up and we've got to put on our running shoes, our spiritual running shoes, and make the decision, today I'm going to run for Jesus. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to go off course. I'm going to keep on running towards that finish line because Jesus is waiting at the other end. That's what, it, that's what he says in verse 8. He says, henceforth... There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What Paul is saying there is he says, it's not, this is not about me. This is not me saying I did such a great job. This is Paul saying I hung in there, and anybody else who hangs in there, when they cross, cross the finish line, and at the end of their life, when they meet Jesus, Jesus has a medal for every single one of you that are willing to run the race, that are willing to not give up, that are willing to not quit, even when it's hard. I think a lot of times it's easy for us to have excuses for why we're not following Jesus more or better or more closely than we should. When we're, when we're young, you're like, ah, I'm still young, I got time. 
and I'm busy, I got all stuff going on. And then you get in and you have a bunch of kids and then you're busy with the kids and all the activities and you're like, okay, I'm gonna try and squeeze some church stuff in. But I mean, I'll have time, I'll have time to follow Jesus later on. And then you finally get the kids out of the house before you die and you're like, oh, finally, finally. And then, but then you got all these other things, right? You got all these other responsibilities and you're exhausted. So whatever stage of life you find yourself in, you have an opportunity to get up every morning and run the race, to finish the race, to fight the good fight, to keep the faith, to accomplish the mission that God has given to you. Because living for the gospel means never giving up. Not only does living for the gospel mean never giving up, living for the gospel means pouring yourself into other people. So look at what Paul says in verse 9. Remember, this is Paul's final request to Timothy. This is his last chance to ask for something. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with, bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books above all the parchments. Okay? You have to appreciate the fact that Paul is a Bible nerd because with his very last request to Timothy, he says, what I really need is my favorite sweatshirt, my favorite hoodie, and I need my books. All right, because I'm a Bible nerd guy. I need my books. That's what I need. You know, I'm in jail. I need a good solid coat and I need some books and I need my guys. We don't know a lot about Demas. We know he was a, 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 one of Paul's co-workers, and it looks like he didn't finish the race. It, it's very possible that when Paul finally got arrested and thrown in prison, some of the other Christian leaders in Paul's community were like, we need to put some distance between us and Paul. Because I'm not sure that I want to end up in the cell right next to him. You know, maybe Demas had a family, maybe he had a business and he had a job and he had a mortgage and he had kids to take care of. And he was like, this is not the gig I signed up for. I didn't sign up to do prison ministry from the inside. I can go serve Jesus somewhere else where there's a little less heat and a little less pressure. Titus and Crutchens, probably different circumstances. These are guys that Paul had trained up and Paul had sent out. But you see, this is what Paul is understanding. Paul is aware at this point that he may never leave this prison cell. He may die in prison. And the work of the gospel, the work of making disciples of all nations and getting the gospel out to every corner of the globe, that is work that is going to continue long after Paul is dead. And so Paul realizes that he needs to raise up the next generation of leaders who are going to carry this mission forward. And so he says, come on, Timothy, we got some things to talk about. And while you're at it, bring Mark with you. And, and this is awesome. I, we're just going to camp on verse 11 for a minute here because it's like one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Are you, we're going to go on a rabbit trail. All right. And, and I'm going to give you guys a little bit of backstory about the, about the relationship between Mark and Paul. Now, if you guys remember the book of Acts, it, when the church is young, they send out Paul and a guy named Barnabas 
and Barnabas' little cousin Mark, and they are the first missionary team to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And they go from town to town, and they go from place to place preaching the gospel and telling people about Jesus and planting churches, and people are getting baptized, and it's going great. And somewhere along the line, Mark taps out. Mark was not able to finish the race. For whatever reason, we don't know why Mark was like, this is more than I signed up for, I can't do it, and Mark goes home. And so uh, Paul and Barnabas have to kind of finish the missionary journey without him. And so then years later, when Paul and Barnabas are getting another trip together and they say, let's go back, let's meet all the same churches that we planted, let's talk to some pastors, let's do some pastors conferences, let's do some, uh, let's do some theological training, let, you know, let's, let's do some, some seminary classes, you know, and, 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 and Barnabas is like, that sounds like great, I'm going to get Mark. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We're not bringing Mark. Mark bailed on us the first time. And Barnabas is like, well, yeah, but he's, he needs to learn. We need to bring him with us. And, the, and Acts chapter 15 says that there arose such a disagreement between the two of them that they had to separate. They had a knockdown, drag out fight over this. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure either one of them was wrong. I mean, I can kind of see it from Paul's perspective. Paul says, we're going into kind of enemy territory. This is not going to be easy. This is going to be hard. They're going to throw stuff at us. They're going to call us names. We might get thrown in prison. I can't have somebody on my team that I can't count on. You know, uh, I remember I was on a Mexico trip once and uh, we brought a group of men and women together. We were going to be there for a week. One of the guys on the trip, he was there one day. He got up the next morning and he was like, this is more than I can handle. And he got on a bus and he went home. Sometimes that happens on the mission field. But let me tell you something. The relationships that you build with brothers and sisters on the mission field, those are powerful, closely knit bonds. You know, I think about some of my friends that I've spent time with on, on mission trips in Mexico. Those are people that I care about deeply. And so the fact that, that Paul and Barnabas couldn't get on the same page about whether or not to bring Mark and that it was such a big disagreement that they had to separate, that's a big deal. And like I said, I can totally see Paul's point of view. Paul says, this is dangerous stuff. I need a guy I can count on. But Barnabas had something else in mind. Barnabas had this idea. He said, no, no, no. Mark is not an asset or a liability in the mission. Mark is part of the mission. Because you see, Barnabas understood that living for the gospel means pouring yourself into other people. He had done it way back in the beginning when he met a guy by the name of Paul. And he was doing it again with a guy by the name of John Mark. But the cool thing about this story is God took a situation that, I mean, that could have been the end of the ministry. They, they could have been, well, we can't get on the same page as to whether or not to take Mark, so we're just not going to go at all. No, instead... Barnabas said, come on, Mark. And Barnabas and Mark went one way and formed one mission team. And Paul teamed up with a guy named Silas, and he went on another missionary journey. And now what the Lord has done is instead of one force for the gospel, there's two. And God took something that could have been the end of ministry, and he multiplied the power of the gospel. And the other cool thing that happened is that God began to work on Paul 
and on John Mark. You see, Paul and Silas, they go on this missionary journey and they meet a lot of people and they plant some new churches and they tell people about Jesus. And he met this guy named Timothy. And something about Timothy, Paul began, the Lord began to change Paul's heart, I think. And he looked at Timothy and he saw the same kind of potential for the greatness of the gospel in Timothy that Barnabas had seen in Mark. And Paul looks at Timothy and says, this guy is going to do great things for the kingdom. And he says, so he takes Timothy with him. And Timothy becomes the young man that accompanies Paul on so many of his travels. And he follows Paul while they preach and while they plant churches and while they teach, and when they're writing books of the Bible, Timothy is sitting next to Paul, and he's probably a co-author on some of these books of the Bible. So when Paul says to Timothy, bring Mark, because he's useful for me for ministry, it's a powerful reminder to me that God is never done working on us. God continued to work in the heart of Paul and to teach him that living for the gospel means pouring yourself into others. And God worked on John Mark too. You know, John Mark ends up uh, meeting a guy by the name of Peter and Peter tells him the story of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And, and Mark writes it and we end up with something that we call the gospel of Mark. So God did great things through Paul and Timothy, and God did great things through Mark, and it's just powerful confirmation that somewhere between the middle of the, of the book of Acts and 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, Paul says, hey, bring me Mark, because that guy, God's going to do great things through him. Because living for the gospel means pouring yourself into others. So brothers and sisters, this morning I want you to think about Who's my Paul? Who's my Barnabas? And who's my Timothy and who's my John Mark? In other words, do you have someone in your life that has been walking with Jesus longer than you have that you can learn from? And do you have someone in your life that has been walking with Jesus less time than you that you can teach? that you can disciple. You know, that's why things like life groups are so important. You know, the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. And so it's so important, not that just that we can come together on a Sunday morning and hear the word of God preached, but that we can gather with a small group of believers and we can learn what it means to live for Jesus in a context of community so that there are those people in your small group, in your life group, in your community group who can, who can teach you what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to fight the good fight, to finish the race and to keep the faith. And so if you don't have that person, if, if you don't have that person in your life group that has been following Jesus longer than you, that can teach you something, you need to find that person. And let me tell you how you're going to find that person. That person is going to be honored to share what God has taught them. And if you don't have somebody in your life that you are teaching, find somebody that can be your Timothy or your John Mark. Let me encourage those of you who are parents or grandparents, sometimes it works best to start with people with your same last name. You know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You know, the chances of anything that I ever say or anything that I ever play or something that I write on Twitter outliving me is not very good. 
You know, the things that I say and the songs that I sing, those are going to be long gone by the time that I'm dead. But if I can raise four little people named Hogan to love Jesus, that's a force for the gospel that outlives me. If I can raise my four kids to, to, to be in love with Jesus and to live for the gospel and they grow up and they raise children for the gospel, that's a force that affects the kingdom long after I'm gone. Living for the gospel means pouring in to others. So who are those people that you're pouring into? If you don't have kids, find somebody in your church. Find somebody in your life group. It doesn't have to be somebody of a certain age. Find somebody who's been walking with Jesus less time than you that you can pour yourself into for the good of the kingdom because the mission that God has given us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, that's a mission that's bigger than any one of us. And that's a mission that's going to continue long after we're gone. Paul's instructions to Timothy, living for the gospel means never giving up. Living for the gospel means pouring into others. And finally, living for the gospel means standing up for Jesus, even when it means that you're standing alone. This is what he says in verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. In other words, this might be the guy that got Paul thrown in prison. So Paul says, when you come to visit me, you need to steer clear of this guy, all right? Don't, you know, God's gonna take care of that. that God's gonna take care of what happens to him. That's on the Lord. You just steer clear of him. In verse 16, he says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's uh, trial probably had like different phases. And so maybe it was a preliminary hearing. I'm not quite sure how the Roman legal system of the first century worked, but Paul got to stand up and he was going to give a defense for why he wasn't guilty of the crimes that had been, that had been charged against him. And he thought he was going to have a whole bunch of people from the church that were going to stand there with him and say, no, 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 Paul's a good guy. We vouch for him. And yet Paul found himself all by himself. And Paul's looking around, and it's like he's all alone. And you know, and again, these are people in the church who probably are thinking, you know what? We did not sign up for prison ministry on the inside. We don't want to be sharing a cell with Paul. We have lives, we have jobs, we have families, we have kids, we've got stuff we need to do. So maybe we need to put some distance between the first church of Paul and the first church of the rest of us over here. And so Paul did not get the support he was counting on. He suddenly found himself completely and utterly alone. But the good news is that even though Paul looked like he was alone, he wasn't alone because the Lord himself was standing right next to him. Jesus Christ says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And Paul stands up and the way Paul looks at it, he says, I had this trial and I had to stand there all by myself, but you know what I got? I got to tell the whole courtroom about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And I got a chance to take the good news of the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and share it with the whole courtroom. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And we don't know if that's like literally like he might've been like thrown to the lions and they changed their mind, or if that's just a reference to the old Testament from when believers were sa- like Daniel were saved from the lion's den. We don't know. It could be either one of those things, but this is what he says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The reason why Paul fights the good fight and finishes the race and keeps the faith, the reason why Paul spends his life pouring himself into other brothers and sisters, the reason why Paul is able to stand up for Jesus uh, when no one else could is because Jesus Christ stood in his place for his sin. Don't forget when he says the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. He's not just talking about evil deeds that are done against us. He's talking about the evil deeds that we did. Jesus Christ, long before he saves us from circumstances, he saves us from ourselves. He saves us from our sins. He stood in our place for our sin. 2 Timothy 5, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5 He made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, who knew nothing about sin, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. We give Jesus all of our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Long before Jesus Christ stood next to Paul when he's giving his defense, long before Jesus Christ made it work so that he was able to be saved from whatever fate could have happened in that courtroom, Jesus Christ saved Paul from his sin. And Jesus Christ saves you and me from our sin. Jesus Christ stood in our place for our sin. He died on a cross for our sin. He rose on the third day so that we could have life in his name. The reason that Paul is able to stand for Jesus, the reason why Paul is able to fight the good fight, the reason why Paul is able to get up every morning and put one foot in front of the other and finish the race is because it's Jesus that's waiting at the finish line saying, well, good, done, good and faithful servant. The Christian life is not a popularity contest. If you are following Jesus because you want to win friends and influence people, you are going to be at times sorely disappointed. Sometimes it's really easy to follow Jesus and sometimes it's really hard. And let me tell you something. We've seen a major cultural shift, even in my lifetime, from being a culture where like most people went to church on Sunday because that was the thing you did and it was sort of understood that they, maybe they had relationship with Jesus and maybe they didn't, but you at least went to church and that was the thing that people did and that was fine to a point where lots of people don't go to church and now living in the culture that we live now, if you go to church, people might look at you sideways and say, wait a minute, that's not safe.
I've seen it get harder to follow Jesus in the few decades that I've been on this earth, and I believe it's going to continue to get harder. There are going to be times where we have to stand for Jesus and we're going to appear to be standing all by ourselves. And when that happens, you remember you have a Savior who will never leave you or forsake you. And he is standing there with you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Living for the gospel means never giving up. Living for the gospel means pouring yourself into other people. And living for the gospel means standing up for Jesus even when you have to stand alone. Because Jesus stood in our place. And so we stand for him. This morning, I'm, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. This morning, if you... Uh, have never had the opportunity to give your life to Jesus, if you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, I want to invite you to do that this morning. I want to invite you to give your life to the Savior who stood in your place for your sin. We're going to have, I'm going to ask Pastor Jonathan to come, and he's going to be up in front here. And then we're also going to have some couples on the sides of the stage. And if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, if you have questions about uh, what it means to fight the good fight and finish the race and keep the faith, uh, they'd love to answer some of those questions. We'd love to, to, to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. I want to give you that opportunity. give you the opportunity to stand up for Jesus because he stood for you.